Hello and welcome to the Low Tech Lecture Series. The following is an unedited lecture of a topic tangential to the Low Technology Institute. The ideas expressed are those of the speaker. We hope you find it informative and entertaining. As it is unedited, audio quality varies. Stay tuned after the lecture for information about the Low Technology Institute and its other offerings, or find us at lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com. Thanks and enjoy. This lecture series is a recording of the class Archaeology in the Prehistoric World from the spring semester of 2017, taught by Scott Johnson. So uh, picking up where we left off yesterday, we were talking about mapping. Uh, we talked about planimetric mapping. We talked about total station real briefly. And we ended talking about GIS, which is that layer system where we can use um, computers to do predictive modeling about where we might find sites. Uh, or other uh, features of interest archaeologically. So after recon, the next um, phase or level of investigation is survey. And surface survey, well, all most surface survey is largely done, as the name implies, on top of the surface of the Earth. But we're going to also get into things like subsurface testing and remote sensing, um, which are also types of survey. Uh, but basically, this is a slightly more focused look at a particular archaeological phenomenon. Uh, reconnaissance is really to get an idea of what's out there, a, a wide overview, whereas a surface survey is saying, OK, we've uh, gone through this region and we've found 37 sites. Let's take a look at each one of those sites. Or um, let's take a look at these water courses, uh, now that we know they're there from the recon, and see if we can get a um, closer look at those things. So survey depends on reconnaissance to kind of narrow in on what it's going to look at. The primary mode of surface survey is walking, uh, sometimes by horseback, sometimes on bicycle. Uh, but largely it's walking. And what we'll often do is create a grid system over a large area. Usually this is you know, large squares with 100 meters on either side. So it looks like just a big thing of graph paper. But if this were on a map, these would demarcate 100 meter by 100 meter zones. And then what we do is we want to systematically go through them. Um, and what you see people doing here are uh, walking transects, T-R-A-N-S-E-T, C-T, transect. Um, a transect is just a straight line that you walk. And depending on your visibility or your ground surface visibility, GSV, ground surface visibility, you can be very widespread out. If you're in a desert and you can kind of see really well around you, you might be 20 meters between each person. If you're in a jungle or something that has very low surface visibility, you might be 5 meters or 4 meters or even a couple less than that uh, apart. And what people will do, is they'll line up at that predetermined interval, more or less, we eyeball it, um, across a, uh, one side of that square. And then everybody walks as straight as they possibly can across in these transects. And that way, we systematically, unlike reconnaissance, which isn't very systematic, in survey we are, or try, try to be very systematic. And we walk our transects, and we're looking for Anything that looks um, human-made, uh, often artifacts. We do a lot of transects in farmers' fields because farmers, uh, when they plow, they churn up a lot of the top 30 centimeters or one foot of soil. 
and so we like to do service surveys and fields. Uh, like I said, sometimes here we are fixing our bicycles. Uh, I've seen surveys done on bicycles when you're doing a large area with good surface visibility. Pretty unusual though. Um, all right. One thing to note about surface surveys is we're just getting, we're skimming the top. You know, we're seeing if this is layers of soil. Surface surveys are a very small percentage of what's underneath. And depending on what is going on in the local area, this might be representative or it might be just the latest stuff, the last stuff. If you have really shallow soils or soils that get turned up a lot, it might be a little more representative if you have very boring <laughs> uh, sedimentation where things just slowly grow over time. They don't get flipped up and you have very deep soils. Surface um, finds aren't going to be that indicative of what's below. So it's really episodic or uh, dependent on the, the individual context. All right, GPS. When I started teaching GPS, these units were all big and clunky and expensive. Before I started doing archaeology, the first GPS that was used uh, was the size of a Volkswagen Bug and it took four people to lift it and move it, and it was only accurate within a kilometer. So great when you're in the middle of a jungle, but not so great for what we like to do today. Um, again, GPS was developed by the military. Again, we're stealing uh, from other people their technology to use for archaeology. Now today, each one of you, I mean, there's 10 people here. We have 10 GPS in this room, right? Each of us on our phone has a GPS. Um, so they've gotten much smaller and more accurate, which is great and useful. We use them in archaeology. Um, but just in case you don't know, uh, because we seem to take GPS for granted uh, nowadays, there are 24 medium Earth satellites around the globe. And so basically what we have is this network of satellites that are geo-positioned around the globe. And they know where they are by referencing points on the Earth. And by triangulation, they know where they are in, rel in relation to the Earth. And then when you, here with your phone, not that anyone has an antenna on their phone, um, are on the surface of the Earth, it reads the signal from these different satellites and says, oh, by triangulation, I know where I am. And that's how we get our GPS locations. Uh, it's gotten more accurate over time. Uh, it's pretty accurate for left to right or um, our spatial or um, surface position, but it's not so great for elevation. Usually you're, if, you're, if you're using one of those type of GPS and it says you have plus or minus two meters or five feet or six feet of error, you can double that at least for your elevation. So they're not usually good enough for mapping uh, unless you buy the, I think the current one that's good enough for mapping costs $20,000, which, you know, it'll get cheaper over time. So we use GPS a lot because where we're working, we don't really have a lot of landmarks or um, man-made things that are visible from the sky that we can geolocate. We mostly have to use these to get our first place for mapping and then from there on we use a total station. At least that's what we've been doing. That will change as they get cheaper and better. So subsurface testing is exactly what it sounds like. It is a type of survey where we test what is just below the surface. So surface survey up here. Subsurface survey is looking below by using a couple different um, tools. What we have here are um, borers or augers. 
bore or not <laughs> synonymous with instructors, right? Bore and a uh, auger. Borers and augers are basically tubes that you can either twist or shove into the ground. And they'll go down and they'll make a, co or a uh, column of soil that gets then pulled back out. And then you can look at that soil. It gives you an idea of what's below the surface. Sometimes you get lucky and you even pull up pottery. Or sometimes you get unlucky and you hit bones. <laughs> That's happened before. You can go right down into a burial and you crack some ribs and then everyone's really upset. Um, but it is a quick way to take a sample without having to do excavation, really. Um, we can also look for different types of soil. Some soils are more indicative of human use. Uh, the really dark, um, organic-laden ones might be indicative of a midden. I think I mentioned midden before, but a midden is just fancy. M-I-D-D-E-N, midden. It's just the fancy word for trash pit because archaeologists want to sound smarter. They don't want to walk around talking about trash pits. Um, Got a video of um, a borer in action. Boop, boop, boop. With boop, boop, boop. Yeah, okay. Da, 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 da. Oh, we're collecting a. Okay. Oh, yeah, here's. So this is a surface survey where we are in a square on the, uh, we're doing a type of surface collection, which I'll talk about later, because that's right before you do excavations, you do this. But um, where's that boring I was talking about? Da, 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 washing pottery. Here we go. It's super loud, so I might have to turn it down. Oh, I turned the sound off. So this is Jair. So Jair is taking uh, samples of a lot of mosquitoes, uh, taking samples of the soil out, and then he's bagging them. So he's describing the scientific nomenclature for soil, the way that we describe it. And he's a soil scientist, so he can tell from that um, relative amounts of human use and things like that. Yeah. Shush, quiet you. Okay. More on that later. So uh, that's subsurface soil survey is taking that that soil out. Um, it can then give us information. Again, we're just kind of trying to hone down or focus in on the different places that we're going to excavate later on, perhaps. Um, you can also use subsurface survey or surface survey as a means to answer a hypothesis uh, or test a hypothesis as well. You don't have to use it as a precursor to excavation, although it's a good idea to know have an idea of what's there before you start wasting a lot of money digging, because digging is really expensive. You can do a lot of subsurface survey for not a lot of money. All right, and now we're going to get into 
remote sensing. Remote sensing is all dependent on some sort of medium being sent out and or brought back from things underground. So all remote sensing is, is sensing things remotely or far away, right? So it's exactly what it sounds like. Getting uh, information out of the ground uh, without really digging or doing anything else. It's, it's usually active, but sometimes passive. We'll talk about those. So the first one uh, that we'll talk about is uh, seismic. This is an active type of um, remote sensing. This is mostly used for gas and oil prospecting. So this would be something that a, um, an oil company would do a lot more than an archaeologist, but an archaeologist could certainly use this type of um, this type of technology. So basically what happens, here's the Earth, and they have this big 18-wheeler that um, has basically an earthquake machine in it. You've all been in earthquake machines at like uh, science museums where you stand on it and it shakes. They basically have one of those inside of it, and they put down a whole bunch of feet so it's really well connected to the ground, and then around it they put sensors, and you know, at hundreds of meters in all directions, they put these sensors, and then they turn it on, and it shakes the Jesus out of the soil and the sand and the dirt and the earth. And if there's a fault line or something, those seismic waves will bounce off it funny. Whereas over here, they'll be nice and smooth. And so they can see that kind of deflection, and that's what we're looking at here, these fault lines. And that's, as you can see, that's more useful for people prospecting for oil, but it certainly comes, it could be used for archaeology too. Um, acoustic methods use sound. Uh, we might not be able to hear them, but it's still sound waves. Um, this is pretty much the same thing as sonar. So, or it is sonar. So imagine we have uh, the surface of the ground here. Here's the surface, and here's the put little vegetations that indicates the surface. Um, and so you walk over, and it looks like a lawnmower. It's this box. It's got a little handle, wheels, and a person, which I will draw as a stick figure. And they walk over the surface, and it bounces down uh, sound, and then that sound bounces back up, and it records it. It also has a GPS on the top, so it knows exactly where it is. And by doing this, you know, when, you're, when there's nothing underneath, it's just bouncing back smooth. Uh, but then let's say there's the edge of a building. Here's the two, you know, courses of stone that make up the two walls. As you go over, it's going to bounce those back in a different way because the stone is going to have a different bounce characteristic or um, signature than just plain soil. So you can walk over, boop, 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 and it'll bounce it back. And you can get great, so here's what the readout looks like. And this is kind of as tedious as mowing a lawn. If you look in this one picture, you can see all the different lines in the, in the stones here. Because this guy has walked back and forth at about this speed, so pretty slow, uh, across that entire plane. And every boop, boop, boop. Boop, every second or so, it's taking measurements, or 10, 10 per second, or whatever you have it set to. It's bouncing the sound and getting the response. And then when you put those all together, 
you can, because again, it's GPS located, it creates these really cool images. So like every little square here is where they walked over, boop, and it took a bounce. And by, you can fine tune it, you can say, all right, what's the bounce signature at you know, uh, two milliseconds? And what's the bounce signature at five milliseconds? And so you can look at different depths because the sound's gonna move farther as it gets longer, right? So maybe a two millisecond uh, look, you only see the tops of the wall here coming out. But then if you look a little deeper, you actually run down onto the floor. And it's really cool because they can tell you like, oh yeah, that's two meters below the surface. You're going to dig, you're going to hit the floor. And lo and behold, they're, if they're pretty uh, slick with their, they're pretty uh, well acquainted with their equipment. They can tell you almost exactly how far down to go. Um, GPR is um, ground penetrating radar. Ground penetrating radar, which is basically the same as sonar, except it's using radio waves instead of sound, but exactly the same principle. Sound versus, um, sound versus radio waves. So GPR and, and uh, acoustic or sonar, that's fine. Electrical resistivity depends on kind of uh, the dampness of soil and how well it conducts electricity. So let's say we have this building under, underground like this, and you can imagine that the, the moisture level of these stones is different than the moisture level of the soil in general. And so what this does is it has an apparatus with sharp metal spikes. And those metal spikes are put in the ground, and then electricity is sent between them. And the more resistance there is, or the less resistance there is, um, can create a pattern when it's put out over a large area. So here we have somebody dragging their electrical resistivity pack. Oh, I don't have an image. It looks like it looks not dissimilar to this, uh, to the GPR time slice, uh, except where the GPR time slice or the acoustic time slice really um, shows you a differences of, say, materials like soil versus stone. The um, electrical resistivity shows you a difference of, um, uh, of moisture, and moisture is retained in usually things like ditches rather than walls. So the wall might show up, but what would really show up is a ditch because this would create a very different resistance pattern because this layer of soil would retain water differently than this one. Um, so ditches and roads and things like that show up much better with electric, electrical resistivity, whereas the GPR might not pick it up. Metal detector is kind of a joke. Well, I mean, it's not a joke. Like you see people out with metal detectors and like when I was in uh, field school learning how to excavate, uh, so we're in England and we're 40 minutes outside of Reading, which is like an hour outside of London. We're living in a field. We're all sleeping in tents. And this was before cell phones were, I mean, cell phones were there, but we didn't have service. So you, and we had no electricity. So basically every night we sat around the campfire and drank a lot of cider, because what else are you going to do? Sang songs and it was a good old time camping out. And then we'd work all day and have a good evening and read a lot of books. It was fun. Anywho. One night, um, as I'm walking out 
to the, uh, the bathroom area, I see a guy walking on our site with a metal detector. And, and I went back to the campfire. I'm like, oh, there's a guy with a metal detector. We all ran to the equipment shed and got like Maddox, which are like, uh, they use them for like, uh, it's, like a, it's like a hoe if you were going to dig a basement with it. It's like a huge hardcore thing and then it has a spike on the other side and so we're like chase this guy off it was a lot of fun anyway metal tech detectors do have a place in archaeology but they don't necessarily uh, a lot of people who are not archaeologists and who are not using them responsibly also use them I have friends on Facebook who uh, post stuff they find because they do this as a hobby um, so you see a lot of people like this walking around finding people's wedding rings and things that they've lost on the beach but archaeologists can use them in, number one, you have to have a society where metal or metal-type things are used that are going to be picked up by it. And that's not necessarily the case in a lot of ancient societies that don't use metal. Um, also, metal disappears. But we, um, it uh, rusts away. But we do have other things that, do, that can show up through metal detectors, um, like uh, iron-heavy soils and things like that. Um, but for the most part, I've never ever used one or been on a site that's used one. So they're pretty rare, but they could be used. Phosphate tests are really cool, actually. So a phosphate test or an iron test, these are basically geochemical signatures that indicate past activity. They're geochemical signatures that indicate past activity. So if you look on this map, you see all these plus signs. Each one of those plus signs represents a soil assay or a, where they put down a core and they brought the soil up just like we saw in the video. When they bring that soil up, they put it in a bag. That bag gets sent off for survey, uh, for uh, analysis, and they come back with um, how high the, for in this example, how high the phosphates are or how high the iron content is. And then, just like we did with our um, total state or with our uh, topographic map, you can see how the darker and higher bits, that's where there's more phosphate. So they're using that to show relative frequency rather than height. But the darker areas are likely to contain uh, trash, bits, pit, uh, trash pits because phosphate levels are correlated with a lot of food waste, high phosphates. Um, even thousands of years later, that area in the soil will have higher levels of phosphates. So you do a really systematic survey of um, soil, and then you send it away, and you can get back the relative frequency and location of these phosphates. Um, and then you can excavate in the areas that are likely old trash bins, because trash pits are great for archaeologists. They, they're like time capsules. All right. Magnetic survey methods. Now, uh, this is very similar to GPR or electrical resistivity, except this is an extremely sensitive piece of equipment that measures derivations in the Earth's electrical magnetic field. And so when they walk down these lines, um, they are picking up how small changes in the soil, like where a hearth was, it will um, heat the iron and um, affect the magnetic field. Just And I mean like, not that you'd be able to pick it up very easily. You couldn't put like down a compass and see a difference. No, it's a very sensitive piece of equipment. Um, 
And they, again, they walk the lines. It measures the uh, changes in the Earth's magnetic field. And then they can come up with these pretty cool looking um, maps. You can see something, maybe a road there and there, some sort of, you can get kind of an underlying sense of what's under the soil. Um, now, notice how schlubby this person is dressed. And usually I wouldn't comment on how poorly an archaeologist is dressed because as you may have noticed, archaeologists often don't give a crap about what kind of clothes they wear. Um, present company included. Uh, she can't wear anything metal. So she can't wear shoes with metal grommets, they're out. You can't wear pants with a metal zipper, they're out, or rivets, so jeans are out. You can't wear anything with any metal whatsoever. So she's wearing some very uh, lovely Velcro shoes, um, some you know, socks, sweatpants, uh, and you know, a shirt with not like zero metal. So that's fun because they would throw it off, right? It's so sensitive that just a piece of metal on you would throw it off. So that's super fun. Okay. That's what we got for survey. So as a um, experiment, if you'll, uh, when you're done with your notes, uh, pull out your phones. We'll have fun anonymous quiz time. Has anyone used these before, Menti before in classes? No? Yes? They're not going to steal your phone number. They're not going to spam you or anything. You go to the website, menti, w, oh, sorry, menti.com, um, -E and then it'll ask you for the code. You can put in the code, and this screen should pop up with potential answers. And then um, I believe, I think it lets you know how many answers. Sometimes you can answer more than one. Um, so what type of map is this, right? Pretty straightforward. Is anyone having trouble finding it? Website? One of you's found it and or answered. Two, six, seven, three. I won't show the results. I don't want to skew it. Almost. What are we? Six, seven. Okay, six. And one more. I assume that means you've answered rather than just found it, right? Have most people answered? Yeah, okay. And one more. I think, right? Six, seven. Does anyone have trouble finding it or answering? Hmm. Yay, technology. Okay, we'll just go. Hey, you all got it. Topographic. Yeah, correct. Um, super difficult question. Okay. All right, so for the quiz, once you're all there, I think everyone, oh, yeah, you can answer fast to get more point. Like, it's for your own waiting for players. Do you have to, do I have to, so there's five. Okay, so yeah, just answer quickly and correctly, you get a lot of points. Quickly and wrong, you get zero points. Slowly and right, you get some points. Slowly and wrong, you still get zero points. Okay, let's try it. Get ready. I don't like that. 
Defining regional boundaries is a goal of Well, that's really long. Huh. Answer is yes. Uh, recon, recon is correct. Um, although, I guess you 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 could define them in in survey. Um, recon really is the first place where you would do that. Survey could help you refine them, perhaps. Um, but defining regional boundaries is really a goal of, um, yeah. Okay, let's see. Oh, Brian. Okay, I, we don't have to do it this way. I don't have to show those because. <laughs> all right. All right, we have six. All right, start the countdown. Okay, get ready. Which type of remote sensing sends radio waves through the soil? We just went over it. And correct. Yeah, seismic is largely um, sound, acoustical, um, acoustical methods. Um, very similar. One's radio, one's sound. Ground penetrating radar uses radio waves. Radio, radar, seismic or acoustic. Auditory sound. Okay. Oh, Brian's just. Oh, Jennifer's close behind. All right, Eric. Everyone's doing. Okay. Um, and next one. Okay, everyone's there. Get ready. What types of information can be gotten from phosphate tests? Everyone has voted. All right. Hey, food activities. Uh, maybe you would see burials. Maybe you would see construction techniques. But food is definitely the preferred thing that you would get out of phosphates, food activities. Mm -hmm. OK. Do we want to see the winner, or we want to just keep going? OK. Hey, oh, Dirk was very fast and pulled ahead. OK. Last question. Um, do you find this type of questioning useful? Yes, please do more of this. Please stop. I guess I don't have a smartphone. I'd like to see how you answer. You don't have a smartphone. Oh, and it's a running tally. All right, yes, more of this, I guess. That sounds like a resounding, OK. <laughs> so yeah, um, I'll throw these in at the end of, you know, it's just to kind of go back without, uh, I don't know. I always found it awkward for like if I was just to ask you the questions and have you raise your hands and answer. I, I find that two people would answer, and everyone else would feel awkward, which is how I always felt with those things. So uh, I find this is kind of anonymous. Unfortunately, the uh, the quiz one that makes you compete, which I don't really like, that lets you ask way more questions for free because I'm not I'm poor. I don't want to pay for the fancy, expensive version where I could ask unlimited questions. So anywho, all right, we'll probably end up doing more of that at some point. Um, thanks for bringing your phones, et cetera. OK. So 
Now we get on to excavation, everybody's favorite. Oops. Is that? Yeah, 15 minutes. All right. So excavation is, like I said, I've mentioned a couple times, it's iconic archaeological fieldwork. It strikes the eye as interesting. There's a whole bunch of squares in the ground. People are bent over, um, you know, working really meticulously. It's, I, I can see why people gravitate towards excavation, even though, as I've said before, it's something we don't actually spend that much time doing. Right. What are these folks doing? Looks interesting. There are sticks everywhere, that, right? It, it's certainly eye-catching. Excavation, as now you by now know, uh, we don't just randomly throw down some place where we're going to excavate because that would be a big waste of time and money. Excavation is probably, for the amount of surface it covers, 10 times more expensive than any other type of um, archaeological investigation because it takes a lot of time and it really depends where you are. If you are in the United States and everybody who's digging has a BA, you're paying somebody with a BA to sit and dig in the soil all day. It gets really expensive because you have 10 people there. I mean, it really adds up. Um, if you're in countries that were previously colonies or non-first world industrialized nations where you have to have someone with a BA, you're often hiring local workers and it can be much cheaper, but it's still, um, <laughs> remnants of colonialism aside, uh, it's, it's still a really expensive undertaking. The reason we do it, though, is it's, it provides the best preserved stuff. If we're doing that surface survey, we're going to find things that have been walked on, that have been bleached by the sun, that have been moved around by erosion, rained on, right? They're not going to be as well preserved. So when we get underground, we're finding things that are surprising, excuse me, surprisingly well preserved. Like uh, here's that Clovis point again between the ribs of the extinct bison that pushed back the antiquity of human beings in North America when it was found in, the, I believe, 1950s or 45 or something like that. Okay, two main goals of excavation. The two main goals are understanding spatial relationships, number one, and number two, understanding temporal relationships. We're not, notice that the goal of excavation isn't finding tombs. The goal of excavation is not finding pottery. Those things give us information, but those aren't the goals. The goals are understanding spatial and temporal relationships. So spatial, that means, you know, where are things on the earth? To the left, to the right, north, south, east, west. Spatial. Temporal, how old is it? And we're going to be getting into the very exciting world of dating, archaeological dating, that is, which is not as exciting as all those late-night TV shows or uh, commercials for dating sites. That's something different. Um, understanding temporal relationships is basically what's older than what, what's newer, and we get that from the vertical information. So it's basically horizontal and vertical information that we're using. So what we're looking at right here is a what's called a test unit. So it's a single square. Uh, this one happens to be two meters by two meters. Sometimes they're one meter by one meter. I've seen them as narrow as 50 centimeters by 50 centimeters, which is like that which can be very difficult to dig very deeply. And so 
when we're talking about spatial relationships, we're talking about a bird's eye view looking down, right? And so I know that this rock is north of this rock, which is uh, west of this rock, right? And if there were more interesting things in this, um, in this unit, uh, we could say something about how they're set up spatially. Temporally, here we're looking at the side. This appears to be this wall down here in the pit. So if we're looking at the wall, the top layer is the newest layer, the bottom layer is the oldest layer, and then they're chronologically stratified. So uh, oldest the bottom, next oldest, next oldest, next oldest, all the way up to the youngest. Um, and that can tell us all kinds of important temporal or time-based information. At the bottom, you're going to see the earliest pottery types, the earliest inhabitants, things like that. As you go up, you're going to usually find later pottery types. Not only can we build those chronologies, and we're going to talk about how we do that in a couple of, uh, I think, next week. Uh, once we know those chronologies and we've found them in different places, we can then already get an idea of like, oh, we found this type of pottery here that we found at another site. So we know that they're probably contemporaneous, or they have some association. And by contemporaneous, I mean they may have existed at the same time period. And while photographs are great, uh, another way that we record them is in drawings. And so here we have that same location, right? So we've got the stone here, the stone there, the dark spot there, or the broken up stone there, all drawn. And then we have the walls. And again, here's the vegetation showing you it's the top. And it shows you the different layers. So this is how we record that spatial. This is the bird's eye view, the spatial information, and then the horizontal information. Unfortunately, I picked, or not unfortunately, I picked a very boring test pit because there's nothing in it. But that's what most of them are. All right, um, so stratigraphy. Stratigraphy is, are the layers of deposited sediments. Stratigraphy are the layers of deposited sediments in which archaeological remains can be found. The deposited sediments, sorry, the layers of deposited sediments in which archaeological remains can be found. These are not unique to archaeology. Geology also uses stratigraphy. Um, you might, another way to say it's the studies of the layers of sediment. And if you've, I've mentioned this before, but if you've ever dug a hole or you've been next to a hole that's been dug in the ground, you often see horizontal layers. Um, and the top one is usually really dark. It's the organic layer, or the O horizon, often it's called. And then we have different uh, lighter colored soils beneath. And now these may or may not be um, different layers that were deposited by human beings specifically or purposefully. They might just be natural layers, but um, there's a really complex uh, excuse me, geology going on here because this is usually black because it has a lot of organics. It's the active layer where um, leaves are decomposing and things like that. And then a lot of the minerals get leached out, so there is some natural reason for this layering. But sometimes, and often on archaeological sites, those reasons are anthropogenic or human-driven reasons for these layers. Hey, um, we just, you know, we live in a, in a compound sort of thing. Like the ancient Maya would often live, like they would start with one house. And then, you know, they'd have kids. The kids would grow up. 
and uh, you know the son or the daughter would bring their spouse in. They'd build another house, and then you know another house, and then maybe they're like, oh, it gets really wet in the spring or in the rainy season. Maybe we should build this up on a platform. So they'll build a platform and then fill it in, and build their houses then on top of that. So over time, they've built up these different layers, and those layers tell us temporal relationships, and so we study them so we can understand what's older than what. Sometimes it's difficult or even impossible to tell if it's a natural or a cultural layer, although we have to try. So um, here we have some other examples, not from me, of stratigraphy. It can be very complex, right? This one here has 33 layers. And each one is distinct, and each one is defined differently. Um, you can tell that it's a different layer by color, by uh, texture. Sometimes it's sand, and then the next one is clay. Um, you can tell by even sometimes it's just sound. Like you'll be digging, and it looks the same, but it suddenly got much harder. And you can like tap your trowel on it, and it dings. Whereas before, when you trapped it on it, tapped it on it, it was just a dull thud, right? So there's all kinds of different ways that we can tell. Oh, there's a different layer here. Um, here you see um, BC dates and AD dates. Um, so they must have taken uh, likely carbon samples from these different layers. And if you know that there's a carbon sample from this layer at a certain date, you can take a lot of that stuff to be contemporaneous or from the same time. Okay, the law of superposition. The law of superposition is Really simple, but really important. Uh, layers above another one layer above another layer is newer. Conversely, a layer below another layer is older. One layer above another layer is newer. It's equally true, or I mean that that's enough. That that tells you the law of superposition. You could alternatively say. Uh, a layer below another layer is older. The reason for that is, you know, so let, let's say this is the surface of the Earth, and a flood comes and deposits six inches of silt. Well, there's no way, so this is the original surface of the Earth, and this is the flood, there's no way that I could somehow come and inject another layer here later. It just it can't happen, right? So, so this layer must come after this layer, and any layer above this must come after this layer. Does that make sense? Like, your cat, your cat can't be sitting on top of your book if your book wasn't already there, because you can't shove it under the cat. The cat will get mad. I imagine I don't have a cat. Um, anyway, so that's the law of superposition. Really straightforward, but really. Important. Uh, some people, and we'll talk about, I think I have a slide of it, reversed, yeah. So here we go. Um, the earliest inhabitants of this area, and then sediment, floods, and other things build up sediment, and some people living in Lincoln Log houses come and put down their houses, which appear to have burned down and more floods came, and then we have, I don't know, looks like profligate people coming and throwing garbage and stuff on the ground. <laughs> They drove out, apparently, to throw their garbage on the ground. It looks like a fun day out. Anyway, um, this layer must come before this layer, which will come before whatever layer comes here. 
That's just law of superposition. Now, you will see sometimes in the archaeological literature where someone will say, I've got reversed stratigraphy. Reverse stratigraphy is a thing, and it basically means that uh, for some reason, things have flipped on their head, and the law of superposition is wrong. It's not wrong. It's in conflict with what they're seeing. So in very, very few cases, and whenever I see this in a report where someone says, oh, we have reverse stratigraphy, usually it just means that their model is wrong and their stratigraphy is right, usually. Anyway, reverse stratigraphy happens on a hill where the top layer erodes and goes down into a gully and becomes the bottom layer. And then the middle layer up the hill erodes down and becomes the middle layer at the bottom of the gully. And then the bottom layer erodes down the hill and becomes the top layer at the bottom of the gully. Now, notice that the law of superposition does work here because in this deposition episode, this layer was put down first, this layer was put down second, this layer was put down third, so law of superposition is still in effect. But if we're looking archaeologically, we know that that one's the youngest layer, and that's medium, and that's oldest, it's reversed. So that never happens. I've never encountered that personally, and I don't know anyone who's really encountered it. You read it sometimes, and you're like, no, I don't think so. But it can happen, but for the most part, law of superposition, slam dunk. Now, this can result in rather complex stratigraphy. So if you were looking at the side of an excavation, and you saw this, and you have to put it in chronological order, it gets a little complicated. And we'll talk about how we do that next time, because I noticed that we're at the end of the hour today. So we'll pick up with stratigraphy on Monday. Thanks for listening to this low-tech lecture. Find out more by visiting our website, lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com. There you'll find the low-tech podcast, our blog, our event calendar, and other things going on around the Institute. You can subscribe to this lecture or our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and many other podcasting apps. The background music is Rachmaninoff's Piano Concerto No. 2 in C minor and is in the public domain. This podcast is under the Creative Commons Attribution and Share Like License, meaning you're free to use and share it as long as you provide credit.